I want to take you back a few years. 1991. Remember the words? Kuwait is liberated. Iraq's army is defeated. Historic words. Words that many of us remember. They represented victory. They represented objectives accomplished. The war is now behind us. The words of President Bush on Wednesday, February 27th in 1991 went down in history for the American people. But as impressive as those statements were, even then I couldn't help but feel a sense of skepticism when they were spoken. Now, I don't consider myself a fatalist by any stretch of the imagination, but I distinctly remember responding to those events with a measure of cynicism. My comments from this pulpit, and I have them written down, went like this, and I quote, although this war is seemingly over, in a year or two or maybe 10, there will be two wars to take its place. And so on and so on and so on. As happy as I am about the events of this week, I will never fully rest until I hear the words of Christ definitively spoken. The earth is liberated. Satan's army is defeated. The war is now behind us. All of our spiritual objectives have been met. Amen? Those will be glorious words. Even though for the Christian, those things have all been accomplished, and we see them in faith, Spiritually speaking, in the earthly physical realm, we are still in a war, and that is very apparent. I remember one of our members, Alex Dion, made a statement once that I thought was absolutely key. He said, and I quote, and it'll be on the screen, that the day we become a Christian, we enter the battlefield. How true that is. As Warren Wiersbe said it, the Christian life's not a playground, it's a battleground. We are sons in the family enjoying fellowship, the fellowship of the gospel, according to Philippians 1. We are servants sharing in the furtherance of the gospel. But we are also soldiers defending the faith of the gospel. And the believer with a single mind can have the joy of the Holy Spirit even in the midst of that battleground. In fact, that's exactly what we've been talking about in chapter 1 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, having joy in the midst of the battle for the gospel. In this chapter, we've seen that the joyful promotion of the gospel involves a few things. It involves having the right perspective. It involves our personal participation in the work. It also involves purposeful prayer for growth in Christ. And we saw in verses 12 to 18 that promoting the gospel precludes the promotion of the person. It's not about us. It's about promoting Jesus. And most recently, Paul taught us that all of that rests upon our confidence in Christ. And that's where we've been through the first chapter so far. Paul, like many people, saves the best for last. And of course, the best is always the hardest to attain. Why? Because many times people are like electricity. We want to follow the path of least resistance. 
And Paul, however, knew that on that battleground of Christian living, the key to winning the war is not to follow the path of least resistance, but to choose the road of greatest persistence. So as he puts his closing punctuation on chapter 1 of Philippians, of this heartfelt letter that he wrote to them, Paul gives his marching orders, which we would do well to pay attention to, even today. He says that the joyful promotion of the gospel involves a persistent pattern of life. A persistent pattern of life. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you're not already there, we're going to look at verses 27 to 30 this morning. 27 to 30. Follow along with me as I read. Only conduct yourselves worthy uh, in, a worthy, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul begins in verse 27 by saying, only, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Paul's concerned about conduct in this section. The King James Version, if you have one, says conversation. That's the word that's used there. Conduct your conversation or whatever is misleading. It doesn't really refer to verbal communication. Conversation in the old language meant manner of life. Our lifestyles speak a message to others. How many times have we said that? A consistent conduct is instrumental in the communication of the good news of Christ. One man has recently pinpointed Paul's charge here. He said the most important weapon against the enemy is not a stirring sermon or a powerful book. It's the consistent life of believers. I want to put it this way. The politics of your walk, your life, will determine the power of your words. The politics of your walk will determine the power of your words. Ironically, the Greek word translated here as conduct yourselves is the word that we get our English word politics from. It means to persistently conduct oneself as a citizen. Fulfilling the duties that come with citizenship. Now, you might be saying, explain that to me. What does that mean? Well, it made perfect sense to the Philippians because Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a miniature Rome, if you will. They, as citizens of Rome, enjoyed Roman privileges and were under Roman law. And when Paul tells us to live as citizens worthy of the gospel, that means we are to live under the politics of the place that we are citizens of. And what is that? Heaven. Right? Why? Because we're citizens of heaven. Amen? We're a displaced people, as Malcolm Muggeridge would say. We don't really belong here. We're simply staying here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, 
Paul elaborates a little more. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things unto himself. Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians. Back a, back a few pages. In verse 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 19 so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow, say it, citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Paul's getting at the fact that we enjoy heavenly privileges and we are under heavenly law. The way we live will reflect where we're from. Is that right? You think that's true? The way that we live will reflect where we're from. If you're a Massachusetts driver, everybody in the Augusta, Maine Rotary will know that you're from Massachusetts because they drive through rotaries different there than they do here. That's not a knock against Massachusetts people. It's just a difference in the traffic law. Because we're citizens of heaven, we should live worthy of that title. Paul's saying, the word worthy means weighing as much as or being of equal value to. Does the fact that you are a citizen of heaven and the way that you live your life balance out? Would people say that? Are you living a life worthy of the gospel? That's what Paul's getting at here. We need to remember that the world knows only the gospel that it sees in our lives. D.L. Moody used to say that a Christian's life is the world's Bible. Is yours? As a pastor, if one of you came up to me and said, I have some neighbors who believe in a false gospel. Do you have any literature that I could give them? Well, I might open the Bible and point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, and say these words to you. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. The best literature in the entire world is no substitute for your Christian life and mine. Let people see Christ in you, and you will have the opportunities to share the gospel of Christ with them. We need to make sure that our lives weigh as much as the gospel we profess to believe in. Promoting the gospel means having a persistent pattern of life, Paul says here. Our, if our lives should read like the Bible, what are some of the persistent elements that make it interesting and desirable to the world? What would you think they are? After all, there's nothing worse than a boring book with no continuity, right? How are people reading our lives? In the passage, Paul prescribes what the pattern looks like, and it involves at least four things this morning. Four things. It involves, first, the stability of a single mindset. Verse 27, look at that, the first part of the verse. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Cohesiveness is the key to stability. 
In a world where everything's fallen apart and the battle touches close to home, people want stability and a sense of oneness. Broken families need harmony. Divided churches need unity. Distraught minds need security. And there's only one place for it to be found, in Christ. Isaiah 33 and verse 6 says this, And he shall be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The stability of your times. Paul says that the pattern of a persistent life begins with the stability of a single mindset. Standing firm. Standing firm here is a military term meaning hold your ground, hold your position. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. Standing firm. It indicates a soldier's determination not to budge one inch from his post. A persistent pattern of life begins with a firm stance. Paul gives the charge elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. He says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. But he follows that up with something very important in the very next verse. Let all that you do be done in love. That's how you stand firm. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. What enables us to maintain a firm stance in our Christian faith? Unity does. Unity does. Oneness is the answer. The greatest joy to Paul would be to hear that the Philippians were standing firm. And what's it say in verse 27? In one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There must be a unity of thought and action among Christians. We're all on the same battlefield, folks. True unity is produced by the Holy Spirit. We can never produce unity. We can never produce unity. Unity, for all the talk of we need unity, we need to work on community, we need to do this, that, and the other thing. No, 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 no. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit produces unity. We already are one by the same indwelling Spirit. Our job is not to produce unity. Our job is to guard the unity that we already have. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. I, therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you've been called, Paul writes, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice Paul doesn't say to build it or to produce it. He says to keep it or to guard it, protect it. If two Christians are not compatible with one another, Guess what? It's because they are not each operating under the control of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not incompatible with Himself. The source of unity is the Holy Spirit. The result of unity is a single mindset. When people view our church from the outside looking in or maybe even from the inside looking in, what do they see? What do they see? 
Because one of the things that attracts people to a church is the sense of family, the sense of oneness among the people. It represents to them stability. Amen? I believe that can be one of the church's greatest strengths if we guard it. If we guard it. When the world looks at us, they ought to be able to say what Luke said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Of one heart and soul. The battle goes to the one with the firmest foundation. The question, are we on solid ground? Someone once said, there is a world to be one, and it will be one as we are one. A persistent pattern of life begins with the stability of a single mindset. The second element involved in a persistent pattern of life here in verse 27 is the steadfastness of a spiritual message. Look at what it says in verse 27, that you are standing firm in one spirit with with one mind, striving together for what? What's the object here? Striving together for what? The faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. It doesn't say anything else here. We are striving together for the faith of the gospel. And Paul's talking about teamwork here. That's the word. Striving together or contending is the word from which we get athletics from. The prefix on this word means cooperation. Cooperation. Therefore, the term indicates that we are co-athletes in the fight for the faith. Amen? Teamwork. It implies working not only in cooperation with each other, but also in complete coordination against a common enemy. John Stemmons, a well-known Dallas businessman, when he was asked what he considered to be foundational to developing a good team, he answered crisply, quote, find some people who are comers, who are going to be achievers in their own field, and people you can trust and then grow old together. And the key word there is together. Now, that's coming from a business perspective. The church can apply that same principle. The church must work as a team if it is to win the battle. All of us ought to be comers. We all ought to be achievers in the unique giftedness that God has given to each of us. Amen? God has entrusted every one of you who names the name of Christ sitting out there, standing up here. As If you name the name of Christ as your master, he's entrusted to you the message of the gospel. And we need to grow old together working on the mission that he gave us. Do life together with one common cause, to introduce people to Christ and to help them to become his committed followers. It's that simple. Paul was exhorting these Philippians to work together because he knew that Satan was working to cause them to split apart, internal strife. Division was creeping into the Philippian church, and Paul's alluding to it very slightly here. In Philippians chapter 4, we're going to encounter it again, but let me show you. In Philippians chapter 4, the first three verses, therefore, my beloved brethren, Paul writes, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He reiterates that firm stance again. 
I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. What's he saying? For some reason, these two women had a rift. And Paul's saying, look, help them to work it out because it's going to destroy the progress of the gospel if you don't. And by the way, the enemy will attempt to bring division in any church, ours as well. And so we must be diligent to guard the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, as Ephesians says. The church is a team of gifted people. It must work together. There's a principle involved here. Jesus referred to it in the Gospels. You know what he said? He said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And the same holds true in the local church. Satan will try to divide the house. The joyful promotion of the gospel depends upon everyone playing their part, doing their job, in sync with the Holy Spirit, standing firmly, single-mindedly, synergistically for the sake of the gospel. And the result of that is joy. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, he says. Why? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We need to be striving together as a team to promote and protect the gospel of Christ. And the mere fact that we are striving, Paul says, means that we have opposition, right, that would follow. We must face that opposition with a firm stance, yet there's one thing that can cause us to lose our ground, and Molly alluded to it this morning, fear. Fear can cause us to lose our ground. We can have all the consistency and the cooperation in the world, but if we don't have confidence in Christ, the battle is lost before it begins. If the enemy can smell a trace of fear on us, he will attack in that area. Peter Cartwright, a 19th century circuit-riding Methodist preacher, I love this story, was an uncompromising man. One Sunday morning when he was to preach, he was told that President Andrew Jackson was going to be in the congregation. And he was warned not to say anything out of line. I'm trying to think of what I would do if somebody told me President Obama was going to be in our congregation this morning. When Cartwright stood to preach, this is what he said, quote, I understand Andrew Jackson is here, and I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent, unquote. <laughs> congregation was shocked and wondered how the president would respond. After the service, President Jackson shook hands with Peter Cartwright and said, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. So not only must we have the stability of a single mindset and the steadfastness to preach a spiritual message, 
We also need, thirdly, the security of a sound manner. The security of a sound manner. Look at verse 28 in Philippians 1. Strive together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too is from God. Paul says that we must face the opposition with persistence, in no way alarmed by your opponents. We're not to be terrified like a spooked animal, Paul says. We have no reason to fear. He wrote to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 27, just turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Look at verses 1 to 3. It's a great prayer to recite. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war rise against me in spite of this. I shall be confident. It's a great passage, isn't it? Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can mere man do to me? Those are very important promises in the Scriptures because we will encounter adversaries and opponents everywhere we go. There's opposition from within the church. Read that in Acts chapter 20, 2 Peter 2. There's opposition from outside the church. There's opposition within the physical realm, opposition from the spiritual realm, as we read about in Ephesians chapter 6. And most of all, we will have opposition from our ultimate adversary, the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8. I like the way the New English translation puts it. Be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. That's a very real threat, and it's an ongoing threat till the day we are home with Christ. Statement I shared earlier that Alex Dion said is absolutely true. The instant you become a Christian, you walk out onto the battlefield. In his book, Your Adversary, the Devil, J. Dwight Pentecost writes seriously about our enemy. He says, Satan is not the adversary of those already in his family. Do you get that? He is the adversary of those who have been born out of any relationship to him by faith in Jesus Christ. Satan does not release his subjects willingly or easily. The very fact that one is snatched as a brand out of the burning and becomes a child of God unleashes all of the wrath of hell against him because he is now an insult to Satan. Because you have received Jesus Christ, you, and I don't mean to scare you, we don't need to be afraid, right? Because you've received Jesus Christ, you have antagonized him, Satan and made an adversary out of him. There is no neutrality in Satan's attitude toward you, and he will have no mercy against children of God. Great, you say, and now I'm not supposed to fear. 
That's right, because you are God's beloved child. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit gives personal attention to you as though you were the only person on the face of the earth. 1 Peter 5, verse 7 says this, Give all your worries and cares to God because he cares about you. He cares about you. Psalm 55, verse 22 says it this way, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Because of this army from hell unleashed against all who come to Christ, the need for unity and courage among believers is of vital importance. And that whole struggle and our lack of fear is a twofold sign to the opposition and also to us. It's irrefutable evidence, Paul says, that number one, you are a child of God, you're saved, and number two, that they are defeated. Right? Look at what it says there. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that is from God. The word sign here is a law term denoting proof or evidence by an appeal to the facts. The facts are that the stability of a single mind, the steadfastness in contending for a spiritual message, and the security of a soundness of our manner indicates that we are destined for eternal life and that our opponents are destined for eternal destruction. In the early days of Christianity, it is said that a scoffer once mockingly inquired of a Christian, so what is your carpenter doing now? And the answer of the unperturbed Christian was bold, making a coffin for your emperor. <laughs> I like that. Matt Chandler put it this way, fearless faith results from holding on to Christ as our treasure. And I love this statement. Gospel courage comes from gospel preciousness. The more precious you believe the gospel is to you, the more courage you will have to stand for Christ. In his book about Cambodia, Killing Fields, Living Fields, Don Cormack tells the story of a Christian teacher named Haim during the time when the Khmer Rouge came to power. Haim knew that the youthful black-clad Khmer Rouge soldiers, soldiers now heading across the field were coming this time for him. Leaning weakly against his hull for support, itself ironically the primary instrument of execution that they used, he watched their easy, menacing, unhurried pace. Haim was determined that when his term came, turn came, he would die with dignity and without complaint since liberation on April 17th in 1975, what Cambodian had not considered this day. Haim's entire family was rounded up that afternoon and they were considered to be the old dandruff, the bad blood, the enemies of the revolution, CIA agents. They were Christians. The family spent a sleepless night comforting one another and praying for each other as they lay bound together in the dewy grass beneath the stand of friendly trees. And next morning, the teenage soldiers returned and led them to their place of execution, the, the killing fields. Curious villagers foraging in the bush nearby lingered, half hidden, 
watching the familiar routine as the family were ordered to dig a large grave for themselves. Then consenting to Heim's request for a moment to prepare themselves for death, father, mother, and children, hands linked, knelt together around the gaping pit, and with loud cries to God, Heim began exhorting both the Khmer Rouge and all those looking on from afar to repent and believe in the gospel. Then in a panic, one of Heim's young sons leapt to his feet, bolted into the surrounding bush, and disappeared from sight. Heim jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority prevailed upon the Khmer Rouge not to pursue the lad, but to allow him to call the boy back. The knots of onlookers peering around trees, the Khmer Rouge and the stunned family still kneeling at the graveside looked on in awe as Heim began calling his son, pleading with him to return and to die together with his family. What comparison, my son, he called out, stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your family here momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. And after a few tense moments, the bushes parted and the lad, weeping, walking slowly back to his place with the kneeling family, and Haim told the Khmer Rouge, now we're ready to go. By this time, there was not a single soldier standing there who had the heart to raise his hoe to deliver the death blow on the backs of these noble heads. The author says, ultimately, this had to be done by the Khmer Rouge commune chief who had not witnessed any of these events. But few of those watching doubted that as each of these Christians bodies toppled silently into the earthen pit which the victims themselves had prepared. Their souls soared heavenward to a place prepared for them by the Lord. Should we be surprised at the casualties and at the battle scars? We shouldn't be. Shocked, yes. Surprised, no. Because finally, Paul says that suffering through the battle is one of the privileges of being in the family. Now you're saying, oh, now you're going down a road I don't want to go. Me neither. One of the elements involved in the persistent life of a Christian, according to Paul here, as he finishes out this chapter in verse 30, 29 and 30, is that he is in submission to a suffering mandate. Look at verses 29 and 30. For to you, Paul says, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This is one of the most mind-boggling couple of verses of Scripture that I have ever read. This isn't a chocolate mousse passage like I said last week or a few weeks ago, thick and rich. This is castor oil, bad tasting and hard to swallow. You want to spit it out. This verse says that suffering for Christ's sake is a gift of God's grace, just as faith is a gift of God's grace. And you're going, what? 
When you become a Christian, your faith was a grace gift, according to the Scriptures. Amen? A privilege, an honor, the Scripture says. This verse says that that gift package also included the privileges of suffering for Jesus' sake. In other words, Paul says, suffering is a fringe benefit of faithful belief. That gives me shivers just reading that. When we became one with Christ, we entered into a partnership with him in his life and in his death. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. It says, Paul, this is, this is Paul's lament here. He's saying that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't want to know that? Everybody wants to know that. But then Paul says something really crazy here. He says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship, the partnership of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What are you saying, Paul? Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus tells his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Paul knew this firsthand. He was going before governors and kings. It was part of his mission, his purpose for God saving him. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will, children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. Because of my name, Jesus says. For no other reason, just because of my name. Now, I want you to notice something here. However, that not all suffering is a privilege. Keep that in mind. Not all suffering is a privilege. Only when we suffer for his sake. Suffering for ourselves for some crazy, useless cause that has nothing to do with Christ is worthless. That's important to realize. Don't fool yourself into thinking that if you get in hot water with your boss, for instance, because you're consistently spending half of your workday talking to your fellow workers about Christ, that you're being persecuted for Christ's sake. More likely, it's because you're robbing your business of production time. There are ways to witness to people without stealing time from your boss. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you, however, suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but to glorify God in this name. 
There are many ways believers suffer for Christ's sake today. They may not be as outwardly intense as Paul's or the Christians in Iran and Iraq and Syria right now, but I'll tell you something. If you're a Christian living persistent Christian life of godliness, you will feel the heat. You may be passed over for a promotion. You may be fired or laid off. You may lose some friends or be disowned by your family. You may be mocked and humiliated by people in your community even. You may be hated by certain minority groups. You may even be physically threatened. Whatever that may look like, if you live for Christ, you will ultimately bear his reproach. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says it very clearly. Now, in fact, all who want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Somewhere, sometime, some way, somehow, you're going to feel it. And at the same time, however, remember that not only you, not only will you bear his reproach, but you will also reap the reward. Amen? Chapter, chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel In the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says these words, Blessed are you, are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. I don't know if you've noticed, in all the verses that I've read so far on suffering for Christ, it's always coupled with joy. Have you noticed that? Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the way of the world, isn't it? It always has been. The way of the world is to praise the dead saints and persecute the living ones. Right? But there's encouragement in all of this. You and I are not alone. We're not alone. Every Christian will suffer for Christ in one way or another. Count on it. But remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. He said this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I don't know if any of you joined online the vigil that was held for Pastor Saeed Abedini, but I watched as his wife read a letter that he wrote from prison on the occasion of his daughter's birthday. And hearing those words that he wrote from an Iranian prison was like reading the letter to the Philippians encouraging the daughter to stand firm for Christ, not to leave or, or be upset about the persecution he was suffering because it was all for God's glory and one day they would be together in heaven. And I watched those two little kids about this high sing a worship song in front of that crowd that their father used to sing to them every night before he put them to bed. What a powerful testimony that was. It just made me think of this verse where I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He may have even quoted it in that letter, if I remember correctly. 
Listen, when you present the gospel to people, do you present this suffering side of the story? Do you? Or do you only present the love and the forgiveness and the eternal life and the promised blessings side? Because, my friends, we can't beat around the bush and we can't have any fine print with people. Jesus never had it with us. There must be full disclosure. The Christian life is not a cruise. It's a contest. And I don't mean contests like, you know, draw your number and win a prize. I mean contests like a boxing match, a battleground. It's a full-on, knock-down, drag-out, agonizing battle with a very persistent enemy that demands an all-in, single-minded, spiritually steadfast, and soundly persistent pattern of life. Not one of us desires resistance, do we? Of course not. We long for days without difficulty. But God knows better what's best for us. The easier our life, the weaker our spiritual fiber. For strength of any kind grows only by exertion. December 29, 1987, a Soviet cosmonaut returned to the Earth after 326 days in orbit. He was in good health, which hasn't always been the case for those record-breaking voyages. But five years earlier, touching down after 211 days in space, two cosmonauts suffered from dizziness, high pulse rates, and heart palpitations. They couldn't walk for a week after they got back. And after 30 days, they were still undergoing therapy for atrophied muscles and weakened hearts. At zero gravity, the muscles of the body begin to waste away because there's no resistance. To counteract this, the Soviets prescribed a vigorous exercise program for the cosmonauts, and they invented what they call the penguin suit. Has anybody seen one? The penguin suit. It's a running suit laced with elastic bands, and it resists every move that the cosmonauts made, forcing them to exert their strength, even in zero gravity. Apparently, the regimen worked because that suit is still in use today. It's called the Adeli suit, it's now called, and it's currently used to treat children with physical disabilities resulting from cerebral palsy and other neurological conditions originating from brain damage or spinal cord injury. What's the point? The point is, is that if we don't have resistance, the muscles atrophy. Without a constant strain of the fighting of the good fight, our spiritual muscles waste away. Paul says, the gospel being engaged in its advance, that's what we're about. Don't fear the opposition. You're going to have it. Expect it. I close with the wise words of an insightful man. Phillips Brooks once said this. He said, oh, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. How are your spiritual muscles? Getting enough exercise? 